So we're going to break uh, this sermon up this morning into two parts. Uh, we're looking at Mark 11, uh, 27 to 33 first, and then a little bit later we're going to look at the parable in Mark uh, 12, 1 to 12. Uh, but before we read Mark 11, uh, 27 to 33, I wanted to share this with you. I want you to think about events uh, throughout history. Think about events that you can recall knowing exactly where you were when that happened. Think about those events in history where universally people, I remember where I was at when that thing happened. These are usually tragic uh, events. So perhaps uh, if you were around, the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor is something that, that sticks in your memory or, or the assassination of John F. Kennedy or most recently, many of us would recall the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11th. 2001. I can recall that morning at, as being 18 or 19 years old. I was working uh, in retail. I was training to be a manager, and I can I can remember a frantic phone call that I received uh, from one of our sister stores saying, "Turn on the news. Somebody's attacking us." And I can remember all of the events of that day because time stood still while we just absorbed the news and saw what was going on. It's one of those events that, again, you can recall knowing if you were alive then you knew exactly where you were when you got the news that we had been attacked. It's because it was a momentous occasion, a momentous occasion where time again seemingly stopped and the world watched. The powerful and great nation that we call home was invaded and, and the invasion was crazy because it was happening on our own soil. It wasn't just an island out in the Pacific. They were, they were attacking one of our great cities, New York. We were being attacked in a series of airline hijackings that forever etched into the memory of those who were living at the time. It's etched into our memory. We also realized in that moment that something had shifted. Things changed. Things were forever changed. We question why this had happened. Why this momentous occasion? Why did this tragedy occur? And who had the audacity to carry out such acts? If we think about this passage that we're about to read in light of the historical context, what has just happened? What momentous event has happened in the life and ministry of Jesus? He entered into the temple and he cleansed it. The passage before us lies in the wake of a, of a momentous event in the life of Christ and the history of Israel. Jesus has cleansed the temple of those selling and making money off of the temple. But more importantly, Jesus has made a momentous and bold statement in his actions and his authoritative teaching in the temple that brings forth now these religious leaders that we will meet in verse 27 and 28. His actions from the previous day are etched in their memory. They will not soon forget. And they set out to question the authority by which Jesus commits these acts. We pick up the story in verse 27. It says this, And they came again to Jerusalem, that is, uh, Jesus and his disciples. And he was walking in the temple, and the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, these group of men constitute what we would call the Sanhedrin. Have you guys heard that word before, the Sanhedrin? And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? 
Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Summarizing this section, the religious leaders questioned Jesus. Uh, We can assume that such questioning in in the wake of such a momentous disruption uh, to the temple cult was forceful and direct. Let's, Let's remember what Jesus has just done. He went into the temple and is flipping tables over. He's teaching. I'm sure that these uh, religious leaders are not tiptoeing around as they approach him and question him by which authority he does these things. In other words, they look at Jesus and they say, who do you think you are to do such a thing? Who do you think you are? Jesus responds with a question of his own. A question that if they had actually answered correctly, would answer their own inquiry. The implications of John's baptism, that's what Jesus is referring to here. The implication of John's baptism being from heaven would only solidify the words of the prophet John when he declared, if you remember back to Mark 1, he declares this, when he is getting ready to baptize Jesus, he says, after me comes he, that is Jesus, who is what? Mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Then he says this, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is obviously the one who came preparing the way for the Savior, just as God's word had said before. He was preparing the way for the Savior. His life and ministry ordained by the Godhead. His baptism was, to answer the question of the religious leaders, from heaven. His baptism was from heaven. All of the evidence is apparent. Certainly the Sanhedrin, the very Jewish religious leaders questioning Jesus, have heard the, re- the reports of the works of the poor Jewish carpenter in their midst. Certainly they had heard of his exorcism, the way, the way that Jesus had commanded demons with his authoritative word and cast them out. Certainly they have heard of him healing people, blind people and lame people, people with skin diseases. Certainly they have heard of his authoritative teaching. We learn all through Mark that that people were astonished when Jesus taught. And certainly they have witnessed his own power and his own authority just the day prior in the cleansing of the temple. But this brings us to our main point, our main idea. A hard heart rejects Jesus. A hard heart rejects Jesus. All the evidence is apparent as to who the authority is and where Jesus draws that authority from. But a hard heart 
is only overcome by the miraculous touch of God's intervention. And so these men will remain in their wickedness, continuing to plot and plan the demise of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Their arrogance and self-centeredness keep them blinded from the salvation that is before them. All of Scripture has pointed to this moment when Christ would come and redeem his people and the leadership of God's people are rejecting Christ. They're blinded from the salvation that is before them. And so Jesus, now looking to the parable, grants them another opportunity to rid themselves of the callousness of their heart. He speaks to them in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. It says this, And he began to speak to them in parables. And he gives them this picture. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, that is the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent him another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The owner had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, that is the religious speakers, uh, the religious leaders that they're speaking of, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Very dark story. From this parable, we can draw three truths about God. The lesson is obvious in connection with the teaching of the parable to the proximity of what's just happened. These, the religious leaders are, are questioning the authority of Jesus. The religious leaders have, have been part of leading God's people astray. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. And have devised ways to attempt to place themselves in the position of God. They've taken the great gifts that God has given them, the blessings as found, as pictured here in the vineyard that he prepared for them. And yet they want to be above God. This is the heart of sin, isn't it? It's the heart of sin. Adam and Eve fell into the same air. They wanted to be in the position of God. They wanted to be the authority. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And the religious leaders here question, this, this is just amazing. They question the very authority of God in their midst. Do you guys get that? 
Do you see that? Like Jesus is in front of them and they're saying, who do you get this authority from? God is in their midst, but because of their hard-heartedness and their blindness to all the ways that God has blessed them, all the ways that God has pointed to this very moment that the Savior would come to them, that the great Redeemer is now in their midst. Think of the audacity of these men to question God in the flesh. We see the goodness of God within the midst of this. Let's break down this parable. Three points. Point one, we see God's command. We see God's command inferred within this, in this parable. Mark uh, 12, 2 It says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The man or or the vineyard owner represents who? God. He planted a vineyard, developed it, put in a wine press, fenced it for protection, and then invites tenants in to care for the vineyard. He's given them everything they need. God works, we see oftentimes in Scripture, throughout the whole of Scripture, that God works covenantally with his people. Covenantally. The parable would have been obvious within this agrarian culture. They farmed. The tenants owed a portion of the product to the owner of the vineyard. It was their obligation You see the covenant in exchange for reaping the harvest of this vineyard planted by the man. They would give some back to him. The expectation for the tenants is that they would bear fruit. Very simply, we see God's command here to bear fruit. And that he would come and receive that fruit. It's why God's people are oftentimes characterized by fruit-bearing plants. We, th- we see it throughout Scripture. Olive trees, fig trees, grapevines. This is the basic command of God. Again, that people will bear fruit. Jesus says this in John 15, 8. And so the time comes to obey the covenant and command of God, and instead the tenants do this. They beat God's servant and they send him away empty handed. Not only do they not give him anything, but they beat him up and they send him back to the owner. And so we see God's goodness in this parable, too. It brings us to our second point God's forbearance, God's forbearance, God's patience. We see God's patience. Why? How do we see God's patience? Because oftentimes we jump all the way to the end when it says that he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. But what does God do throughout this parable? He keeps sending servants. Verses 3 and 4, and they they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now what happens? Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. God is so patient with us. God is so patient. Not only does the servant who went to gather what rightly belonged to the owner and comes away empty-handed, but he's also beaten. Empty-handed and beat up. 
And the owner does what? Goes in and pulls it back right away? No, he's patient with the tenants and he sends another servant and another servant and another servant. God's patience or his his forbearance on full display here. What does that mean? His his long suffering. God is restrained to take action where he has every right. Does the owner not have every right to kick them off the property after the first offense? Absolutely, but God is so patient. I'm so thankful for his patience. We read it in light of what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, that is such good news. God is so patient with us. Patience of God on display. The servants of God in this this story, they represent God's messengers all throughout history being mistreated and beaten. Just read the Old Testament and see the way that the religious leaders oftentimes treated the prophets that came to speak truth. It's all they were doing was answering the call of God to go and call God's people to repentance and, and point them to the light. Begging for God's people to follow his commands and to do this, to bear fruit, to bear the evidence of God's goodness and blessing on them. God is so patient. But there's a warning here. His patience does not last forever. So we see this parable also point to this, point number three, God's just judgment. God's just judgment, verses 6 to 9, it says he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The question is asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. God is so judgy, isn't he? The son is sent, the the tenants now plot. I want to ask you this question. What's the worst crime that you can commit in our judicial system? The longest sentence, the most severe sentence. What is it? First degree murder, right? First degree murder. What is first degree murder? It is premeditated, planned murder. One thinks about killing the way the act will then be carried out, and then they carry the act out. That is premeditated murder. That is exactly what is being discussed here. And we see the murmurs all throughout Jesus' ministry. They didn't like him. They're questioning him. And we're seeing it ratchet up. Now they're meeting together with people that they were enemies with, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And then they're plotting ways to try to bring Jesus to death. The tenants, so blessed by the owner, 
through his giving of the vineyard, protection, patience. They're continually hardened to his goodness and grace to the point that they plot to kill the heir and take what is rightly his, or at least they thought so. What a scary position to be in. The son obviously represents God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. The son in this parable is the one that is declared in John 3.16 as the one that God has sent because what? He so loved the world. There are no more warnings. There are no more biblical prophets to come. They have come pointing to the Redeemer, Jesus. Jesus is in their midst. The evidence is clear as to who he is, and yet the religious leaders remain hardened to the one that they should recognize so clearly. And so what happens? God can rightly judge these as they have rejected his commands. They have beaten his servants, and they, have killed, they will kill his beloved son. We know the ending to the story. A warning is evident. And let's be clear, this parable doesn't just apply to the religious leaders. It's there for a reason. It's there to serve a purpose. It's there to instruct us and to sharpen us. But it applies to each and every person. We are, let me be clear, we are all accountable to the command of God. We're all accountable. We have all received the blessing of his patience, his common grace, and his son is presented to all persons. And I want to ask you this question. Will you receive him or reject him? Will you receive him or reject him? The Bible is clear, church. Hear this. The Bible is clear on this. There is no other hope for redemption than through the precious salvation only available through Jesus Christ. There is not multiple paths to heaven. There is one path. There is one true path. And it's through the precious blood of Jesus. Our culture and many of what we would call progressive churches out there are muddying the waters. And also, those are false teachings. You cannot be reconciled to God through any other means than through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 should scare us. Let's read it says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? And then this last warning, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Be warned. Our default when we read a parable like this is to look back at the foolishness of the religious leaders. But I beg of you this morning to examine your life. 
Don't point to somebody else. Examine your life. We are accountable. Every person in this room is accountable to God because you have heard the gospel. Jesus came to the Jews first, his people, and subsequently his blessing, as it was always intended to be, is extended to all the nations. We witness this in the establishment of the church. We see it in the New Testament epistles. Jew and Gentile grafted together in one vineyard under one banner, the banner of Jesus Christ. And so, too, we are warned of God's just judgment within this parable. Those who are not found to be in Christ on that day of judgment will find that there is no sacrifice left to cover sin. Hope is only found in belief and trust in the one true sacrifice, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we can draw two lessons from this parable. Lessons from the vineyard. Number one, believe and build upon the cornerstone. Believe and build upon the cornerstone. One of my favorite titles for Jesus is cornerstone. So descriptive of who he is. And he says this in verse 10 to 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says this, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus echoes Psalm 118. Let me be clear. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone in building is the most important stone in that building process. It's the reference point for the whole building. In construction, the first and most important stone laid And it's not only a guide for the construction workers, but it also is what everything is built upon. It's a guide and we build upon it. That cornerstone is the guide for us. And here, the religious leaders have rejected God's cornerstone, Jesus. The cornerstone can't be destroyed. It may have appeared that it was smashed and pulverized. It was ground down and used as gravel to be trampled underfoot. But God's purpose is greater than this. It is a sure purpose that will come to pass. And God can always use evil for his greater good and glory. He does that with Jesus. The rejection, malice, and premeditated murder plot of the religious leaders brings the Savior to the cross. They attempt to pulverize the cornerstone and grind it into dust. Jesus' body was ripped apart with a whip, a cat of nine tails, and his bloodied body was placed on a cross, and he died. But our cornerstone didn't stay dead. He didn't stay pulverized, beaten, bloodied, and bruised. But the good news is, is he was raised to new life on the third day, defeating death in the grave. Imperfection. And this is our cornerstone that we look to as our only hope, church. Jesus is our only hope. 
In his death, we have covering for sin. In his life, we have life that is truly life. In his death, covering for sin. In his life, we have life that is truly life, truly living in Christ. Peter says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, he's speaking to the church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see the, the picture here? To be a holy priesthood, we're all priests through Christ. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. It says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We believe in this cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And we not only believe in him, but we trust in him with our lives. And we build upon his firm foundation. And if you believe and build upon the cornerstone, you, church, will not be put to shame. That is such good news. And we offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus, and they are only acceptable through him. And now because of this, coming out, bursting out of this new transformed life that we have in Christ because of his goodness and his patience and his grace, because of our grateful and transformed hearts, we commit to the call of God, that command that we look at, at the very beginning, to bear fruit. Transformation through the gospel leads to bearing fruit. We bear fruit for the glory of God. Jesus says exactly this in John 15, 8. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The command of God is clear. He is glorified. He is made much of when we bear fruit that represents our transformation from the inside out. But what is this fruit? Paul tells us. I'm glad you asked that question. Galatians 5, to 26 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is this, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says, Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Then he says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What is this fruit that God is looking for in our lives? What is this evidence of transformation that we have flowing out of our heart, flowing out into the physical spaces in our community, in our churches, in our families, in our workplaces? It is love. It is joy. Let's talk about joy for a second, church. I'm not talking about being happy. I'm talking about joy that wells up deep inside of you. So that no matter what happens around you, you're not rocked. I have joy in the Lord. Peace. 
We have peace. That's a, a fruit of the Spirit that we are at peace. Because we have confidence in the work of Christ. That's what it means to have faith, that we trust him. God, I trust what your word says when it says that my sins are covered. I trust what your word says when it, when it says that I will stand before God and he will see the righteousness of his son. Patience. It's a fruit that we will bear. We'll be patient with each other. Kindness. Be kind. Not conceited, not provoking, but kindness. Goodness would flow out of our lives, that we would be good to each other, that we would be good to each other within the church, but that, that goodness would overflow into all the spaces that we walk into. That we would be people of faithfulness. Hear this word, gentleness. Be gentle. And that we would be marked by being people of self-control. We don't go it alone, but we have an advocate in the Holy Spirit. It says, who walks in step with us. Always remember, church, that you are filled with God's Holy Spirit guiding, leading you, sometimes dragging you along. You see, a momentous event has occurred in history. Just like 9-11 is that event that is, is forever etched in our minds, we knew exactly where we were when that occurred the momentous event of Christ's incarnation, his taking on flesh has occurred. He has lived the perfect life. He was rejected and scorned and put to death because of our sin. He took the wrath of God upon himself and he died. And he was raised from the dead. He is alive. And he's calling to you today to give you a momentous event in your life. One that forever shifts your trajectory. He offers you, for those of you in the room who are skeptical of Christ, or you're lost, or you're just in unbelief, you don't believe him. He offers to you salvation as a free gift. Receive today. Place your faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Trust in him as your righteousness. Call upon him to be Lord and Savior of your life today. And many of you in this room have had that momentous occasion, that time of calling upon the Lord, and yet the fruit of your spiritual life doesn't represent that which Paul emphasizes in Galatians 5. And so I, I call upon you this morning. Will you reflect upon your place in the vineyard? Will you, in light of the spirit that is indwelling you, in light of the guidance of God's word is found in scripture and be taught here a day in and day out at this church in light of the prayers that you've sent up to God, will you call upon the Lord to help you walk in step with him and so bear fruit? It's time to grow up. And some of you in the room, you need encouragement. You just need encouragement this morning. Keep going. 
So much of the New Testament is just telling us to keep running the race. Keep running the race. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep persevering. I love that word. Persevere in the faith. Keep digging into the soil in the vineyard and planting and pruning and cultivating and giving over to the Lord the beautiful fruit that he has bestowed upon you. All to the glory of God. Representing those words of Jesus in John 15, 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I want to invite our band to come forward. Each and every week at North Bullet Christian Church, we receive the Lord's Supper. As we gather together, God has commanded us to do this each time we gather with the saints. It's such an important time as we have, we've heard the gospel, we've heard about the good news of Christ, we've been called to action this morning that as we sit and we reflect on Christ's sacrifice that we search our hearts and we answer those questions. Have I called upon the Lord as, as, as Lord and have I called upon Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life? Is my spiritual life lacking fruit? The other question, am I persevering? As you examine those, that you would look into your heart, that you would, you would repent and turn away from sin, that you would remember the sacrifice of Christ for you. This is, the Lord's Supper is for followers of Christ, those who have placed their faith and trust in him. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, we would ask that you hold off from receiving the Lord's Supper this morning. But we offer this to you, that if you have heard the gospel, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if you will place your faith and trust in Jesus this morning, we want to invite you to receive communion with your church family for the first time. And if you've made that decision, we'll have elders standing right down here in the front of the room. They would love to pray with you and give you some next steps in uh, your pathway to becoming more and more like Christ. And so I want to read to you Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we receive the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he warns us, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so therefore let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For just a few minutes now, after we're done praying, we're going to have a time where the band will play quietly that you can sit and reflect on God's word that has been preached here this morning. And you can search your heart and repent of sin and then receive the Lord's Supper. And then after that, we're going to stand and we're going to sing as the people of God, as people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And then as we exit this morning, you'll have an opportunity to give back uh, to the mission and vision of North Bullet Christian Church. And again, I want to invite you, if you need prayer, our elders, 
elders will be stationed in the front of the room. They would love to pray for you and minister to you. You can come forward uh, and they will pray for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy that was poured out for us at the cross. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the challenge of the truth of your word. That in the midst of seeing your, your judgment in your word, that we find salvation in Christ alone, that we have nothing to fear because your wrath has been poured out on Christ if we will only call upon his name. Lord, we pray for our hearts as we prepare to receive a communion that you would guide us within that. You would help us to remember your sacrifice that we would eat and drink and remember our Savior repenting of sin. And Lord, as we stand and sing, that you would give us voices of people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And then as we leave this morning, that you would give us hearts of generosity as we give back to the mission of the local church. We have gathered together to bring you praise and honor and you alone. We pray these things through the power of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen.